This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Rear Vision, where we look at the stories behind the news headlines. I'm Kerry Phillips, and today we'll find out how a country that emerged as a promising independent nation 70 years ago became a failed state. Chanting slogans like the leader gave our people sadness. Sri Lankans are taking to the streets every day, angry at the economic collapse of their country. Sri Lanka can no longer pay for imports of basic supplies and a shortage of medicine has the country's peak medical body warning of catastrophic deaths if the shortfall in supplies is not addressed. That was the situation in early April for the people of Sri Lanka, an island nation of roughly 22 million people off the tip of India. Over the last few months, there's been shortages of most essential goods, particularly petrol and diesel, rice, bread, even medicines. Hello, I'm Ahilan Kadirgama. I teach sociology at the University of Jaffna. And not only have there been shortages, the prices have doubled. So it's made life very difficult for people, and, and particularly people who are day wage laboring people whose incomes are very irregular. So it's been very difficult for people throughout the country, and that's been the case in the north as well. Cooking gas has been in short supply. In rural areas, people have switched to cooking with firewood. But in urban areas, people who live in apartments, it's become very difficult. And people have had to stand in lines, in queues for hours at end to get cooking gas or to get petrol. And several people have even died standing in the scorching heat. The nation is in the midst of one of its uh, worst economic crises it has ever seen in history. Hi, my name is R. Ram Kumar. I am an economist by training and I'm a professor at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai. It is also undergoing a very significant political turmoil. The country has declared an emergency, which is again something that it hasn't seen over the last decade. It has defaulted on its foreign debts for the first time since 1948. They are facing crippling power cuts to the extent of 12 hours per day, an extreme scarcity of food, fuel, and essential items such as medicines. Inflation was about 18% in February and March, and the price of a kilogram of rice, which is a staple food in that country, has risen up to 500 Sri Lankan rupees, where the normal price would be around 80 rupees per kilogram. One small packet of about 400 grams of milk powder is costing about 250 rupees, whereas it usually costs around 60 rupees. So basically, you can see that the country is not just in an economic crisis, but it's also in a political turmoil. And all this is primarily because of a significant problem of balance of payments that has arisen in the country over the last two to three years which has many reasons. I'm sure we'll talk about them as we go by. But the real problem here is that the country does not have enough foreign exchange to pay for essential items of consumption, which it usually imports from across the world. At the stroke of the appointed hour, on the 4th of February, 1948, Ceylon, 
as Sri Lanka was then known, woke to its freedom. The Right Honourable D.S. Sena Nayaka, the first Prime Minister and principal architect of his country's freedom, broadcast a message to the nation. After several centuries of domination, we have regained our birthright with our little island enjoyed from time immemorial. After more than a century as a British colony, the country enjoyed a promising start as an independent nation. Amita Arad Pragasam is an independent policy analyst. At the time of independence in 1948, Sri Lanka actually had the highest per capita income outside Japan in Asia. It had inherited from British colonial rule a strong welfare system, an efficient administrative structure and a really well-organized plantation sector. We had tea, rubber and coconut exports amounting to about 90% of all export earnings. We also had the Donamore Constitution, which was created by the Donamore Commission, serving Sri Lanka from 1931 to 1947, which laid the constitutional foundation for Sri Lanka's welfare state and democracy that was designed to balance the needs of different ethnic groups. Sri Lanka at the time was actually one of the only constitutions in the British Empire which allowed for general elections with adult universal suffrage. But the economy it inherited from the British had the vulnerability common in many post-colonial countries, needing imports of even such basic staples as rice. The British rule in Sri Lanka finally led to the adoption of a cropping pattern which was primarily useful and beneficial to the empire, which is the cultivation of tea, coffee, spices, rubber, coconut, etc. And by the time Sri Lanka became independent in 1948, it was essentially dependent on its GDP or the economy was essentially dependent on the export of these handful of primary commodities. It had to import, on the other hand, most of its food grain requirements, such as rice, for example, or other consumption goods or intermediary consumption goods in the non-agricultural sector, including the industrial sector. So its economy was structured in this following way. It earned foreign exchange by exporting tea, coffee, rubber, spices, coconut, etc. And using that foreign exchange, it imported essential commodities like food grains and other non-agricultural items. So the economy was in such a precarious balance by this time. So that basically meant that the Sri Lankan economy in the years after independence has been extremely vulnerable to all kinds of external shocks from the outside world. If commodity prices are rising across the world, it's a good time for Sri Lankan economy. But if commodity prices are falling, which it does very often, then the economy goes into a serious problem of balance of payments crisis because exports fall and the country will not have enough foreign exchange to import essential items. And that precarity of the Sri Lankan economy, that vulnerability of the Sri Lankan economy to all kinds of external shocks in the global economy has been a persistent and pervasive feature of that economy over the last 70 to 80 years. Tourism incomes have gotten added to the kitty and remittance incomes have been added to the kitty primarily because a lot of Sri Lankan diaspora work across the world. Other than these, there is very little change in terms of diversification of the productive base of the Sri Lankan economy over the last 70 to 80 years. That has been the historical feature of the Sri Lankan economy, which should not miss our attention while we discuss the present crisis. 
It didn't take long for Sri Lanka to get into trouble and seek help from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. In the 1950s, there was this Korean War going on in the region, and this had actually led to higher commodity prices. This led to windfall gains for Sri Lanka. Everybody was happy. But by the early 60s, the Korean War had ended and commodity prices had started falling again. And this meant that export incomes of Sri Lanka began to fall. Sri Lanka was slowly walking into a balance of payments crisis for the first time after independence by 1962, 63, 64, etc. This is when it was forced to approach the IMF in 1965-66 with the request for a bilateral loan. This loan was approved by the IMF, and from that point of time, IMF has been a constant presence in the economic policy-making framework of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has taken at least 16 loans from the IMF between 1965 and 2016, and it is currently negotiating for a 17th loan, as we all know. Now, what did the IMF intervention do to the economy? A typical IMF intervention, when it provides a loan to a particular country, what the IMF does is it insists on certain conditionalities. These conditionalities are primarily of the following type. You have to stabilize your economy. That means you have to bring down your budget deficit, which means that you will have to cut down government expenditures. And most probably, this cut in expenditures would be falling on important social sectors, number one. Number two, to reduce inflation, which would have resulted because of shortage of goods, etc., you basically have to follow a very tight monetary policy, which means that you will have to raise interest rates, raise the cost of credit, and thus reduce investment in a supposedly overheated economy. What it essentially does is it stymies all the possibilities of governments making public investment or increasing public expenditure in essential sectors of the economy, in the productive sectors of the economy, in research and development, in science and technology, et cetera, which would help diversify the productive base of the economy. And this inability of the Sri Lankan economy to diversify its productive base and its relationship with the IMF packages has been completely understated, has been completely ignored in the mainstream narratives that you see today on the state of the Sri Lankan economy. That's very unfortunate in my point of view. Professor McMoore is a political economist at the Institute of Development Studies, a think tank connected to the University of Sussex in Brighton. He says the economic story in Sri Lanka isn't all bad news. From really the late 1970s, the economy found new feet, you might say. And in particular, Sri Lanka developed the business of manufacturing garments for export, particularly to Europe, US and elsewhere, and has actually been very successful at that. The Sri Lankan economy since the 1970s has actually grown much faster than the economies of the rest of South Asia. So the economic fundamentals in terms of GDP have not been at all bad. I mean, there is a very big issue here, and of course, IMF programs are very hot-button issues in most of the world, including uh, low-income countries. But an issue for the IMF, and indeed many other international organizations, has been the fact that 
The pattern of public spending in Sri Lanka has changed very consistently over the long term since the really the early 1990s in two fundamental ways. One is that the government has collected less and less tax as a percentage of GDP. So the government uh, fiscal situation has been problematic and that's partly why it's gone for grants and loans because it hasn't been willing to raise them in tax. But at the same time, as public expenditure hasn't increased as it should have done given the growth of the actual economy, what the government has done is continually to increase the number of people in the public sector payroll, but reduce expenditure on other things, including education. And there are far too many people in the public sector in Sri Lanka, they are grossly underemployed, there are very few resources to do anything but pay their salaries. This is worsened not only by the long civil war and the recruitment of a large army, but the fact that the government has continued to expand the size of the armed forces since the end of the separatist conflict in 2009. Uh, we now have a situation where the average person in the armed forces gets paid about twice as much as the average civilian government employee. and from I think any rational point of view, they are receiving money that frankly should be going on health and education and other basic services to poor people. This is Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. You can always find us on the ABC Listen app. In this Rear Vision, we're looking at the background to the turmoil in Sri Lanka, an island nation off the tip of India the country's worst economic crisis since independence in 1948 has brought hardship to its 22 million people, with months of regular blackouts and acute shortages of food and fuel. The short-term roots of the current crisis lie in the re-election of the Rajapaksa family to power in 2019. Explosions on the streets of Sri Lanka, but these are in celebration for an election won on the question of security. I understand that I'm the president of the citizens who voted for me and of those who used their vote against me. Therefore, I'm well aware that I'm bound to serve every Sri Lankan, irrespective of race or religion. Gotabaya Rajapaksa will have to win over the Tamils, Muslims and other minorities as he begins his presidency. The November election followed terrorist attacks at Easter, where 269 people were killed by suicide bombers at churches and luxury hotels in the capital, Colombo. Mahinda Rajapaksa, who'd been president from 2005 to 2015 and had presided over the brutal and bloody end of the Sri Lankan civil war during that time, became the new prime minister, while his brother, Gotabaya, became the new president. According to some measures, the Rajapaksa family actually controls 75% of the Sri Lankan budget or did until Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa resigned. Their family has been associated with authoritarianism, corruption, nepotism and bad governance. 
Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was the prime minister, came to prominence, ironically, as a leader of the Mothers Front, which united the mothers of those who had disappeared during the 1987 to 1989 JVP insurrection. He previously served as the prime minister of Sri Lanka from 2004 to 2005. He then was president between 2005 and 2015, and then he served as prime minister from 2019 his brother, Gothabaya Rajapaksa, and the Rajapaksas are a family of six brothers. Gothabaya Rajapaksa previously was secretary to the Minister of Defence and Urban Development from 2005 to 2015. And he was elected the president of Sri Lanka. So he's the seventh executive president of Sri Lanka. Another brother, Basil Rajapaksa, was sworn in as finance minister of Sri Lanka on July 8th, 2021. The eldest brother, Chamal Rajapaksa, was the Minister of Irrigation. And the youngest Rajapaksa in the cabinet, son of Mahinda Rajapaksa, was the Youth and Sports Minister of Sri Lanka. So this, this family is very much entrenched in Sri Lankan politics and has very much been at the helm of Sri Lankan governance since at least 2004. Tourism, a significant source of foreign income, had fallen after the 2019 April bombings. The election promises made by the Rajapaksa's party to win office later that year proved a further blow to the Sri Lankan economy. For example, it said that it will cut taxes significantly to comprime the economy from the crisis that it was in at that point of time. It said it will reduce value-added tax rates and other tax rates significantly if it came to power. Secondly, it said that it will provide new SOPs to the farming community, the agriculturists of the economy. So, so there were all these promises made in the election campaign of the party. And in December 2019 itself, it implemented the first of his promises, which is to cut taxes on a large scale in the economy. So value-added tax rates were cut from 15% to 8%. The corporate tax rates were cut from 28% to 24%. The thresholds under which you don't have to pay tax were raised significantly in terms of indirect and direct taxes. All these led to the second economic shock that we are talking about of 2019, which is a major fall in the number of registered taxpayers in the society by about 33 to 34% and tax revenues falling significantly as a result. Now, these two shocks of 2019 were very important to be marked as beginnings of the present crisis. But then the third one hit by March 2020, the COVID pandemic began and the country had to be shut down, which basically led to a further fall in the extent of tourist arrivals in the country and the attendant tourist revenues that bring in foreign exchange. So the two economic shocks of 2019 combined with the COVID pandemic of 2020 meant that Sri Lankan economy really went into a tailspin. Its foreign exchange reserves dwindled, its balance of payments difficulties worsened, and by 21, it had very little money to pay for the imports that it had to undertake for essential consumption in the country. Perhaps the most astonishing decision taken by the Rajapaksa government was a ban on imports of fertiliser and pesticides. Sri Lankan agriculture would go organic overnight. What happened in this particular case, we're talking about I think, six, seven months ago, maybe slightly more, the president suddenly announced 
that as of that moment, there would be no more imports to fertilizer or other agrochemicals, and agriculture would go completely organic. Now, you might say that there had been one, some hints about this in the previous election manifesto, but uh, you don't have to be a very uh, well-educated biologist or agronomist to know that converting a whole agriculture to organic overnight without knowing where your organic fertilizer is coming from is total fantasy. There is little doubt that this was an opportunistic move to hide the fact that the government was beginning to realize that there was a problem in paying for imports, and so it decided just to Got to make apparently the best of the situation by just stopping fertilizer imports and claiming this was going to be done on grounds of converting to organic agriculture. But it was, if I say surprising, I'm greatly understating the impact of this on uh, almost everyone in Sri Lanka. Social unrest over the continuing crisis came to a violent head after a general strike or hatal was called for the 6th of May. There had been strikes by trade unions leading up to what we call a hartal on Friday, May 6th. A hartal is a complete shutdown of the country. It's a general strike, but it's also when all shops close up, there is no transportation on the streets. And it was a very clear message to the government that the people were not accepting this government. It was perhaps the greatest day of protest since the Great Hartal of August 1953. And the government was shaken. The president that evening declared a state of emergency and said that the prime minister would be resigning on Monday, May 9th. On Monday morning, the prime minister met with a few thousand of his supporters at Temple Trees, the famous residence of the Prime Minister, and told them that he was planning to resign. And then the supporters went across his house and smashed up one of the protest sites and then walked to Golface Green and started to physically attack the peaceful protesters who were there, burning down their tents. And this led to a tremendous backlash from those who were supportive of the protesters. That evening, a number of parliamentarians, vehicles and houses were torched and almost a sort of state of anarchy took hold. Hundreds of ruling party supporters storm an anti-government protest site outside Sri Lanka's presidential office, tearing down tents and attacking its inhabitants. Protesters say they were also attacked outside the Prime Minister's Colombo residence. Their demands for the government to resign over Sri Lanka's worst ever economic crisis, igniting a tidal wave of violence. On the 12th of May, Ranil Vikramasinghe became the new Prime Minister of Sri Lanka. The new Prime Minister, Mr Ranil Vikramasinghe, this is his sixth stint as a Prime Minister. He comes from what we call the grand old party here, the United National Party, which ruled the country at independence. But Mr. Vikramasinghe has had a string of defeats. He was also prime minister from 2015 to 2019 during the last government, and he was completely discredited to the point that 
in the August 2020 parliamentary elections, this large party only won one seat in parliament. He himself lost his seat, and he came to parliament through the single national list, which is elected through proportional representation. So he has no mandate. He's completely discredited, and he's seen as a deal maker. In fact, the Rajapaksas, when regime change happened in 2015, it was widely considered that Mr. Vikramasinghe saved the Rajapaksas from various allegations of corruption. And now it is that kind of another deal that is possibly being made. The Rajapaksa family, including the former prime minister and his relatives, are in hiding in a military base because they are scared of the protesters. And the, the president himself is shaken. And now he has brought Ranil Vikramasinghe as prime minister. Of course, Vikramasinghe has to show a majority in parliament. And so it's, it's still politically very turbulent times. But the people are going to be very sceptical about this prime minister. Against the backdrop of this turmoil, the IMF has been negotiating a bailout package with the government. The country is in debt to many international creditors, although the largest of these is not, as some assume, China. China is not a big lender to Sri Lanka. If you take all the external lenders of Sri Lanka, 40% of the total foreign debt of Sri Lanka comes from international sovereign bonds. Then comes different foreign financial markets. Then comes the Asian Development Bank. Then comes Japan. And only then comes China. In other words, only about 9 to 10% of the total foreign debt of uh, Sri Lanka comes from China. Japan is actually a larger lender to Sri Lanka than China. But nobody speaks of Japan and its role in the present crisis. Everybody speaks of China. And that is because of a certain controversial role that China has played in the geopolitics of the whole Indian Ocean region. And that hostility towards China, I think, has spilled over into accusing China of creating the crisis in Sri Lanka as well. But I don't think that is aligned to facts in any form. Negotiations with the IMF may take months to complete, and the government and the people would have to support the program of austerity that would follow. Sri Lanka has a poor track record with the IMF, having abandoned many of the previous 16 programs. Sri Lanka's first IMF program was in 1965. Since then, we've entered into about nine other standby arrangements and six extended facilities. Of these 16 programs, only six were completed. And of these six programs, only two were extended facilities and focused on long-term structural reforms, and they were both initiated before the 1990s. So it's true that Sri Lanka doesn't have a, a great track record in terms of completing programs with the IMF, but I do think that this IMF program will be different. The current IMF program Sri Lanka is negotiating is her 17th. It'll be the first time that Sri Lanka is conducting a three-way negotiation with the IMF between the IMF, the government, but also private creditors. And it's also important because it's the first time that the SLFP or the SLPP has obtained an extended facility from the IMF. So it 
perhaps is the first time that this particular framework is coming into play. And, you know, you're right that the IMF has a bad reputation in Sri Lanka because of its history about 20 to 30 years ago. In in previous years, the IMF had a very top-down approach. That is, the IMF would give governments a plan of activities, a timeline for completion. But that has changed, I think, internally. Now the IMF expects governments to send it a letter of intent with a plan, activities, and timelines. And to be frank and to tell the truth, there's very little alternative for Sri Lanka except to go to the IMF now. Doing so is the only way to boost investor confidence, eliminate some of the country's macroeconomic vulnerabilities and allow for fiscal consolidation. Amita Arud Pragasam, an independent policy analyst. The other guests were Professor R. Ramakumar from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, Dr. Ahilan Karyagama from the University of Jaffna, and Professor Mick Moore from the Institute of Development Studies in the UK. Anne-Marie de Betancourt is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.